Well, if you turn in your Bibles at this time, our scripture reading will come from the book of John. The book of John, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 will be our scripture reading this morning. A very familiar passage, a passage of the account of Jesus and his conversation with a woman at the well. As Christ witnesses to a Samaritan woman who comes for water And our reading will come from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. The scriptures read, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although John himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, and I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to drink. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. God of heaven, we come before your word. We pray, O Father, that you would quicken our hearts and illumine our minds and grant to us understanding that we might hear and know what you desire from your word. May we see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that is always interesting is the challenge to communicate cross-culturally. The challenge to communicate cross-culturally. There are things that you do in different cultures and things that you don't do in certain cultures. There are things that you say in certain cultures and certain things that you don't say in certain cultures. When I was in Uganda, one of the things I learned early on is that you don't compliment someone for something that they own. Because if you do, it implies that you want that thing and they will be liable to give it to you. And that's just how it is. I remember learning that right off the bat by Jerry and Candace Bingham, who shared with me that's something that you don't want to do. And so in the first week when I was there, I went to teach at a pastor's conference. There was a bunch of pastors that had gathered and there was a pastor that was in this northern area called Ajimani and he came and he was wearing this very bright multicolored shirt. It was really nice and boneheaded me. I said, that's a nice shirt to which he put up his chest and said, I, I, I will give it to you. And I said, no, no, don't. I don't want you. It's a good thing. I didn't say you have nice kids. You have nice clothes. You have nice Bible. Otherwise, they would have been offering all those things to me. I just wanted to compliment him. There are things in communication and miscommunication that often happen when we communicate things across cultures. And so what is worse sometimes is because of differences, we are afraid and sometimes we don't even communicate. We even choose to avoid people that we may not understand, people that may be different, people that may be far apart from who we are because of prejudices or biases or because of self-centeredness or because of favoritism. This sometimes happens in missions. Those who have been here in the States sometimes think that those people out on the mission field, those people of a different nationality or culture or world, they're just not like us. And let's send people who, to, who, who can adjust better over there and send them to the mission field. People who haven't been able to succeed in the world's eyes in ministry here. Send them overseas because, well, we have a bias. We like our own ethnocentric view of who we are. 
And sometimes we go across cultures when we go on a short-term mission trip thinking that, well, we're Americans. We have the answers because we can do things better. Sometimes we look at life like that in everyday life. We have our biases and our prejudices and they are things that are sinful in our heart. We look at people and say, well, I don't have anything in common with them. It's just too hard to relate to them because they're, they're different and we avoid talking with them. Because it takes too much work, because we're lazy or because we have our own internal prejudices that we would rather not admit. Rather than seeing people, all people, no matter what their ethnic background is, no matter what their socioeconomic background is, rather than seeing them through the eyes of God, rather than seeing them through the eyes of heaven, we look at our own lens of how we feel. Here in today's text, what Jesus does is he crosses a number of boundaries, social faux pas in order to speak with this Samaritan woman. He crosses social and religious, gender, ethnic boundaries that were set up by the culture of that time in order to share the hope of salvation with this woman who comes to draw water. The context is laid out for us in verses 1 through 6 when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. He decides he's going to move from Judea on up to Galilee. Because you see, it wasn't time, it wasn't time for him to have a confrontation with the Pharisees yet. And you remember the context last time in which John's disciples had been coming to John and saying, John, Jesus over there is baptizing a lot of people. And there was envy, there was jealousy, and John the Baptist replies to his own disciples to tell them and remind them that all ministry is from God, that he is doing what he is supposed to be doing, and that is pointing people to Jesus, not to himself. Jesus, he decides to move northward from Judea to Galilee. And in between, there was an area called Samaria. There was an area called Samaria. Many Jews would pass through Samaria, but there were some very strict Jews because of their biases, because of their disdain for Samaria and for Samaritans. They would decide they would take the long route. They would cross over the Jordan River, into a Gentile area called Perea. They would go northward and then cross back over the river into Galilee because of their disdain and their prejudice against those who lived in Samaria. It would be as if you had some prejudice against those who lived in Bellevue and you decided, well, I don't want to go to Bellevue. I want to go to Quest Field, so I'm going to go down 900, go down Renton, on through Tequila, up I-5, around the lake, up to Quest Field, rather than going directly there. That's what some Jews did. They did that because of their biases. And Jesus came to the city in Samaria. It says he came to this city in Samaria called Sychar, near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. 
Now, according to tradition, well attested tradition, Jacob's well is somewhere about half a mile south of Sychar. Is well attested. It is a site that you can go to and see today. There is an unfinished Orthodox church there. And that well is fairly well attested as to its historicity. It's very deep. It is fed by an underground stream with fresh cold water. I remember being there and our guide lowered the bucket down into the well. It would take a long time for that bucket down into the well. And I remember him reaching over and it was a Palestinian who was getting water and it is very cold, very fresh. Him leaning over in his papers fell out of his pocket that would allow him to go back into Israel, fell into the well. But he was just, he was just astounded by the fact that it was just such fresh, cold water. Jesus here sat himself down by this well and it was about the sixth hour, the text says, about the sixth hour. The text says that he was wearied. Even though Jesus was fully God, he was fully man in his humility or his humanity experienced all the things that a person would experience. Fatigue, hunger, necessity of sleep, and he experienced weariness. And so here he says, sits down by the well about the sixth hour. Sixth hour would have been about noon. The beginning of the time would be around sunrise. That would be around the first hour. And then six hours later would be about noon. So in the middle of the day, Jesus is weary. He sits down by this well. By this well. And here this woman comes, verse 7. Woman of Samaria comes to draw water from Jacob's well. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to you, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? So here's a woman of Samaria. She comes in the middle of the day, in the heat of the sun. She walks about a half a mile, and the context implies that she is alone. Women coming to draw water would often come in groups. They would often come in the morning when it's cool or later on in the day when the sun had gone down somewhat. This woman, perhaps because of her shame, because of her lifestyle, came to draw water from the well. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. This is astounding. In fact, her reaction shows that this is unusual. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? This is simply something that wasn't done in that culture. First of all, Jewish men didn't speak with women in public, not even their wives. Secondly, a rabbi wouldn't be speaking to someone who is immoral. Thirdly, Jews didn't customarily have anything, as it says there in the text, anything to do with Samaritans. Now, why is it that there was such animosity between Jews and Samaritans? And it harkens back to their history, harkens back to their history. Much of it had to do with how Samaria came about. In Israel's history, when they had crossed over the Jordan River and they settled into the land, the 12 tribes of Israel... They wanted a king. And God gave them Saul. He gave them David. He gave them Solomon. They were three kings. And after Solomon 
passed away. There was a civil war in Israel and Israel divided between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. The northern ten tribes were known as the northern kingdom of Israel. They had a number of their own kings. None of them followed God. And because of their wickedness, God sent Assyria to judge them, to conquer them. He sent Assyria, which was a very wicked nation, to wipe them out. And the northern kingdom of Israel was no more in 722 B.C. But what would Assyria do? In 2 Kings 17, 22 and 23... It says in 23, until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cush and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in the cities. When a conquering nation would invade and conquer another nation, oftentimes what they would do is that they would deport a number of the young men or the nobles or some of the leaders into their own land and they would import and transplant People who were not of the area such that they would live together, they would mix their religion and they would become a part of a new culture and people. That type of environment caused those who were left in the land to intermarry, to leave God and they became far away from God. Those who were The children were known as Samaritans. In time, those who were the Samaritans left their idolatry. They came back to God. And those of you who know a little bit about Israel's history, when Israel was in Babylon, they came back underneath, underneath Nehemiah. And there was a man named Zerubbabel who came to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans offered in Ezra chapter 4 to help rebuild the temple the temple, but the Jews rebuffed them. They said, we, we don't want your help to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans were very, very offended. Samaritans were angered because they could not have their own place of worship. So they were separated. But even in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the period of 400 years, the Jews went and destroyed a temple that the Samaritans had built in order to worship God. The Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim because they were not allowed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That alienated the two groups even further. And even today, even today there are still some Samaritans living, less than a thousand living, according to a census in that area. So in the centuries that followed ever since that time, there had always been animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered and they said to Jesus, when they wanted to call Jesus a name, they called him a Samaritan. To them, 
That was an insult to be called a Samaritan. And so Jesus, who spoke to a Samaritan woman here in this text, it was completely unknown. Not only did not men not speak with women in public, not even their wives, not only did rabbis not speak with those who are moral, Jews didn't customarily have anything to do with Samaritan. But Jesus comes and He shatters all of those boundaries and cross cultures and cross socioeconomic borders. He comes and He shares with her a message. The point being that Jesus broke whatever prejudicial boundaries were there in order to share with her the message of salvation, the hope that she could have in God. He didn't say to himself, oh, us Jews, we don't talk with Samaritans. It might offend her. He didn't say, oh, no, I don't have anything to do with her. We don't have anything in common. Or she's not very interesting, I'm sure. Or he didn't say, I can't connect with her. He didn't say, well, I don't think she will have anything important to say. No. He didn't say, I'm tired. I just don't feel like talking. What if she goes on about something I, I don't really care about. All I want is a little water. Many of those statements that we sometimes say to ourselves tend to be self-focused, tend to be very selfish, and the thoughts that we have tend to be about how we feel, not about what their need may be. How is it that we look at other people? How is it when we see someone else, how do we view them? Do we see them from God's vantage point to think to ourselves, you know what, maybe they might have a need that I might be able to bless them in some way. Or to look at somebody and say, you know what, I wonder if they know the Lord. How do we think about others? Do we think about what they can offer us? Or do we think about how we can minister to them? What do we think about when we see others? We think about how we feel. Or how they may have a need. Jesus crosses all of those things and reaches out to this woman that I'm sure other women in her town probably didn't even reach out to her. He presents to her the gift of God. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That living water, that gift, is a well-known Old Testament metaphor. Metaphor to describe spiritual cleansing of the heart. For in Jeremiah 2, it says, Forsake it, God, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves, speaking of Israel who had departed, to hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah warned, all who forsake the Lord will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Jesus offered her water that would satisfy her soul, but she didn't quite understand in her reply. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? For her, it was all fixated on what was physical, as if there was perhaps a pot that would never end. How was he ever going to get this water? That's no surprise, is it? Because when we share our faith, when we share the gospel, when we share the good news of the Lord Jesus, 
not uncommon for people not to understand what it means to be saved by grace. Last week I was listening to a testimony by someone who was sharing about how they came to know the Lord and, and they shared about their past and how when they were growing up, they grew up in Utah and there are many Mormons there. And they were sitting in class in a school. And the teacher said something to this effect. They said, none of you believe in that religion where you're saved by not doing anything, do you? To which this young Christian student didn't know what to say. Didn't raise their hand. And the teacher said, good, because that's a lazy man's religion. People don't believe and don't understand how we can be saved by the grace of God due to no works. And that grace of God that saves causes a changed life that causes us to want to do for God and to serve the one that saved us. Jesus here shows her her need. He says, everyone who drinks of the water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirsts with wisdom. Jesus shows this woman her need for what he has to offer. You can imagine the scene. It is the middle of the day in the hot, arid sunshine of the Middle East. And here he shares with her, you need what I have. You need what I have. And that is not only true of living water, but it's true of everything in the world that the world has to offer. She was thinking, boy, where am I going to get this water? Because I'm never, ever satisfied. And that is true for every single thing the world could ever offer. The world can offer achievements and possessions and money and exciting trips and thrills upon thrills, but all of those things are never going to satisfy the soul because only God has what will satisfy the soul and fulfill an empty heart. Those things may bring about some type of temporary satisfaction, but nothing will fill the heart with joy and satisfaction than God and living the way God desires. But this woman, she, she didn't understand because she had a problem. And Jesus confronts that problem and that problem is sin. So he says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. Now, it's not that he didn't know. He knew. In fact, he wanted the woman to want to answer, to which she answers truthfully by saying, I have no husband, but it wasn't the full truth. Jesus said, you've correctly said, I have no husband. In fact, you have five and you're living with the man now and he's not your husband. He exposes and unmasks her own heart condition, her heart condition of sin. And he who came, you see, he came to die for sin. And that is a, a, a crucial part of the message of the, of the gospel is that people are sinners and people need to come to the Savior knowing that they are sinners. And this woman, all she could think of was what will satisfy my need for today, not what will satisfy my soul. And he confronts her about her sin. He affirms the fact that she doesn't have one. He affirms this idea that, you know what, the person she's just living with doesn't make, doesn't make him her husband either. He addresses the issue of the heart. 
He addresses her issue of the heart. See, it's important to recognize that the reason people do not come to Christ, the reason people are not saved is because of sin. It's not because lack of slick advertising, not because games weren't fun enough, or not because the food wasn't good enough. It's not because of anything external. People don't come to Christ because of sin. And here Jesus Himself, the Savior of the world, tells her her need. She doesn't understand because of her blindness, because of her sin. And so He confronts her with that. He exposes her sin. And she says this in response. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. That little phrase she admits. She doesn't buck him. Say that he's a liar of any type. No. She perceives that he is a prophet. In admission to what he has said. That he's spoken what is true and then she has a bone to pick and she picks this bone that has been a point of contention between Jews and Samaritans for a long, long time. And that is where does God want us to worship? You ever share the gospel with somebody like that? You share the gospel of what the good news is that there's hope in Christ and you talk about their sin, but for some reason they've got some other thing they want to talk about. Well, what do you believe about those six days of creation? Or what do you believe about this thing about communion, etc.? I don't like this, or I don't like that. Well, Jesus answers this and gets back to the heart of the issue. He answers the question because it has been a pivotal question about worship, about where we are to worship. And she says to him, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And what she's referring to is this mountain called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans had built this temple. They had built a temple for themselves to worship because you remember they were rebuffed by the Jews. And they weren't allowed to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he, she says, look, you folks, you worship in Jerusalem there at the temple and we worship God, God and Mount Gerizim, this mountain over here. You see, they turned to God they only believe that the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament were Scripture, whereas the Jews believe in the entire Old Testament. But the Samaritans, they believed in, in, in this mountain because they believed that it was designated to them by God. It had to be designated by God. And when the Israelites had come into the promised land under Moses, Moses had them come and in sight of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which are not too far from one another. And he reiterated the law of God at that time when Israel had re-entered into the promise, had entered into the promised land. He reiterated the law of God and he said to the sons of Israel, if you will obey God, then you will be like Mount Gerizim, which is flourishing, which has things growing, which is a fruitful mountain, Mount Ebal was a visual illustration of that which was barren. And he said, if you disobey God, you will be like that. Barren, stripped, and nothing will grow 
You can see it today. You can go and see Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal because of rain shadowing. That happens. All the rain falls on Mount Gerizim. It's flourishing. It's green where Mount Ebal is barren and dry. Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim. And she says, where are we to worship? Where are we to worship? And Jesus' answer is threefold. Jesus says to her, number one, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, a time is coming and it is coming soon when a new covenant will be made. Not the Old Testament, not the Old Covenant where you have to sacrifice all these animals. A new time will come when it is not going to be in this temple or on that temple in a particular location will you be worshiping God. Secondly, he says in verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he answers her question and says, you're right. The Jews who have the entire Old Testament Right now, the worship is to be in Jerusalem. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning that he himself is a Jew and the gospel first came to the Jews, just as Paul reiterates in Romans 1.16. Thirdly, though, an hour is coming, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. God is not a human being. He doesn't have a human body. God is not like us in many ways. God is spirit. He sees all. He knows all. He is all-powerful. And everyone who worships God, it is not a question of location. It is not a question of where you are. It is a question of how you worship. How one worships God. It is to be in spirit, Jesus says, and in truth. Now, this word spirit doesn't have a referent of the Holy Spirit. It is referent to that which is of the human spirit. In other words, the referent is when we worship God, it is internal. It is from the heart. It is not external. Worship is not about the observances, the ceremonies, the rituals, the liturgy, the candles, the structure, the order of service. That is not true worship. True worship comes from the heart. It is internal. Because one can do all of the outward things and yet internally not worship God. John Piper writes, the New Testament reveals a stunning silence about the outward place and forms of worship and a radical intensification of worship as an inward, Godward experience of the heart manifest in everyday life. The main Old Testament word for worship is virtually absent from the New Testament letters, meaning that in the New Covenant, it is an issue of the heart. And even in the Old Testament, God had set up all of those laws to drive the heart to see their need for God. He gives an illustration, Piper does, about the importance of worshiping God from the heart. And he says, suppose on December 21st, I, I bring Noel, who is his wife, 
15 long-stemmed red roses to celebrate our anniversary. And when she says, they're beautiful, Johnny, thank you, I respond, don't mention it, it's my duty. With that word, all moral value vanishes. Yes, it's my duty, but unless I am moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person, the very exercise of my duty belittles her. That is what has to be changed in our worship. We belittle God when we go through the outward motions of worship and take no pleasure in His person. My wife is exalted, not belittled, when I say to her, the reason I would like to take you out alone tonight is because I get so much pleasure out of being with you. He continues saying, when feelings, you see, for God are dead, then worship is dead. Worshiping in spirit is not just merely external. It's not some formalism. You don't come to church and say, I've worshipped God today. You may have, you may not have. Because it's to come from the heart. It is to come from what is internal. John MacArthur writes, it is that which is an overflow of our worship as a walk of life that is culminated when we gather together as a worshiping body. And it is, as he writes in the book, Worship, worship is the primary essential and service is a wonderful and necessary corollary to it. Worship is central in the will of God, the great sine qua non of all Christian experience. And that is why, you see, we were redeemed and we are saved. You see, we're redeemed so that we can worship God. You and I are called to be worshipers of God. Everyone in the world, you see, worships something. You worship something. I worship something. Everyone, even the atheists worship something. Most people get up in the morning and they worship whomever they see in the mirror. They pander themselves. They feed themselves. They make themselves feel good. They do whatever that God in the mirror often says. Because we are all worshipers of something or someone. And God has called us as a redeemed people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because a person can come, even here today, to church and politely listen to the Word of God when one's heart isn't here, when one's affection isn't here. Just as Isaiah said of the people through the Lord, the Lord said, because this people draws near me with their words and honors me with their lip service, but remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. When we sing, what do we sing? Is it because we sing because we love God? If we want to honor God. One can desire to worship. And when their heart desires it, they sing because their heart wants to honor God. Some people say, well, I have a tough time worshiping the Lord or I don't really feel like worshiping or I don't like the music or the preacher's boring or whoever it may be. Listen, if you want to improve your worship of God, 
It is in direct correlation to whom you know God to be. Your knowledge of God through His Word deepens your worship of God. If you don't know the one that you desire to worship, if you don't spend time in His Word thinking along the things of God, then your worship will be shallow. It'll be a ritual. You'll come every Sunday and you'll sing because everyone else is and you like the tune or whatever it may be. But what does worship consist of? It comes from a heart that desires to honor the one that you love. To spend time with the one that you love. That is what worship is in spirit and in truth. A.W. Tozer called worship the missing jewel of the church. Do you know in America, there are 350,000 churches, something like that, and some $80 billion worth of church facilities and property value. The question is, how much true worship happens? God calls us to be worshipers of Him. And her question here, this woman, is just not a side issue, not a bone she has to pick. You know why? Because it's related A person who hears the word of God and who drinks of the living water, who's redeemed by God, God redeems them so that they can be a worshiper of Him. A worshiper of God. And it's not confined to an hour or an hour and a half during a Sunday. For the Scriptures tell us that we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, an offer of worship to God. As a life that is lived. And when we gather together, that is just a corporate expression of a worshiping life. To worship God in truth means that we worship Him consistent with whom He has revealed Himself to be. Not in some self-styled worship. Not in some way where we decide we're going to come to God any way we desire to come. The trend today is really to minimize the Word of God. Really to minimize the time in the Word. Really to minimize the knowledge of the Word of God and replace it with entertainment or other things. Or a self-styled worship that cares less. Who cares about how we come without reverence, without a heart that is prepared, without the proper attitude in one's heart? Self-styled worship tends to be man-centered and does not focus on God. So worshiping God, according to the truth, is just as important as the heart attitude. Teaching what is true is important. But the heart attitude comes together with it in a way that honors God. This woman, she didn't quite get it. Still, she says, I know the Messiah is coming and he'll explain everything to us. And at the close of the conversation, Jesus, in his grace, reveals himself to her and says, I who speak to you am he. It's one of the I am passages for it says, I who speak to you. And the word he is not included. I am. I who speak to you am. Equating himself with God. So here in Jesus crosses all of the social boundaries, all of the 
ethnic boundaries, all of the prejudices that the Jews had. He speaks to this woman and he looks at her, not as someone who was strange, but someone who needed the living water that God had to offer. That is what we are to do. For Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone comes from a different background. And when we look at others, don't look at your own heart and say, How do I feel? Or what does it make me think about myself? Look at them and say, How does God look at them? How can I meet their needs? How can I be a blessing? Maybe they need the Word of God in their life. People need Christ. Let me encourage you to see people the way that Jesus sees them. When He looked at this Samaritan woman who was alone all by herself, He didn't avoid her. He went and ministered to her needs and Jesus can meet your needs as well today. Jesus wants you to come to have that living water of hope, of eternal life, that He can fill that one's heart will never thirst again. For many times, even believers have been swayed, wondering if there might be something else. But God has given to us the words of life, that of living water that fills the soul. And He redeems people so that they will be true worshipers. Because you maybe you know the Lord Jesus, but worship has become rather ritualistic or ceremonial. And it is nothing more but a hollow, outside, external worship. And to God, God is not pleased. Will we make that right? how we look at others and how we worship. Because Jesus here tells this woman, tells this woman, I have the words of life, the living water that will satisfy the soul as He reaches out to her with hope. And may we do the same. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give You thanks. For your word fills the soul. And Father, I pray for all who are here. Lord, you know their heart. All is revealed before you. You know, O Father, whether or not they have been worshiping you or whether it is merely something that is done. Out of habit, out of conformity, out of ritual... I do not know, Father, but You do. And if that be the case, O God, I pray that we might confess before You, desiring, O Father, to live a worshiping life, that when we come, we come to offer before Your throne true worship and praise that stems from the affection of our heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.